1: Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area.
2: Well, on today's program, we are pleased to have joined us the lead pastor of Grace Church of Fremont. He has been involved for many years in church planting and also has a tremendous heart for reaching and meeting people where they are, addressing felt needs and seeing that as a means by which God can open a door to touch hearts and lives. Joining me today on the program is the lead pastor of Grace Church of Fremont, Pastor Josh Roten. Pastor Roten, great to have you with us today.
3: Craig, thank you so much, and to Kfax for having us on. I really appreciate it.
2: You have, as I suggested in my opening remarks, a, a very broad and varied background. You have worked uh, literally in the trenches, engaged in church planting, I made a reference to your heartbeat for addressing felt needs. You have served not only as a co-director of CityServe's Compassion Network, but currently sit on CityServe's board. So we want to break it all down and give our listeners a chance to know a bit about what's going on in your heart, and most importantly, what God is doing at Grace Church in Fremont. But take us back, if you would. Walk us through kind of your spiritual journey to the cross.
3: Uh, I was uh, raised in the Bay Area in San Leandro, My dad planted a church there when I was three years old, so grew up in the East Bay and had a heart and love for ministry from real early years of life. And so I'm not sure how uh, wise in hindsight the decision was, but God's faithfulness has been good. My wife and I, um, as kids, uh, moved here, moved back here after college in the summer of 2002 to plant the church. And so we've been serving now in the east bay the church started in newark and uh, we then uh, partnered with a sister church in our network um, and moved to fremont about eight years ago so yeah 21 years now of pastoral ministry and over that time like you said i was the director of church planting for um, our region of venture church network oversaw i think about 13 or 14 church plants and uh, partnered with our local pastors here in uh, the Tri Cities, Fremont, New York, and Union City, CityServe, um, helping with uh, co directing our nonprofit Compassion Network for a season. So, yeah, I've done a little bit of everything, and God's just been very faithful um, in many ways. Um, this is a challenging area. You know, as you talk to church planners and pastors, the the percentage of Christians, the percentage of people in the Bay Area, uh that attend a Christian church is significantly lower. That's the reality than the rest of California for sure, but uh in so many ways it's also a it's a mission field. We don't have to go anywhere um they're coming here, and we get to represent Jesus. My prayer is that the church I lead and and just the the brothers and sisters that I get to serve with that we we do that well that we carry his name well and we represent him well. To our community.
2: That's a fascinating standpoint, because I'm sure some eavesdropping on this conversation would think, gee, he's got roots in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's a PK. He ought to know that this is an area where there is certainly a tremendous need. And, and sometimes pastors want to take the easier route out and say, Well, me go where it's, the ministry is going to be the easiest instead of where it's going to be the toughest. But you've kind of zeroed in on, shall we say, ground zero of outreach, which has a fascinating dynamic to it, because when you talk about an opportunity to reach the world for Christ, that certainly defines the Bay Area.
1: It
3: really does. Uh, you know, I had, I was, I was thinking about this conversation this weekend. Um, I had to have a conversation with somebody just new to our church. We're going through a ten-year visioning process, and so these series of dinner gatherings that my wife and I are leading. Uh, and It was exciting. I was meeting this person for the first time. He's been coming to our church for I think over a month, and so I'm, I'm having uh, this meal. There's 20 of us in a house, and I'm getting to know him, and uh, he just immigrated here from China, um, you know, asked about his spiritual background, and no, no one in my family is Christian, and um, he felt like he wanted to learn about Christianity, so he started coming to our church, and he's heard the gospel, and we, um, some of our leaders just started to conversate with him, and over this month, this Sunday, he's getting baptized, and so, you know, he was very, you know, just excited, and he's thrilled that he found Jesus, and one of his statements was, this really is good news. And we said, yeah, that's actually a Christian word. It's called the gospel. And and so I get to baptize him this Sunday. And I just thought, you know, uh, here we are uh, in God's sovereignty and is his grace. He allowed this to happen, you know, to send this person here to Grace Church for this season. And um, those types of events happen in the Bay Area, I think, more than anywhere else in the United States, because of the diversity and yes that brings a challenge and yes we're playing i would say we're, we're not playing with home field advantage um we're, we're on their territory but at the same time you know the the gospel is powerful the holy spirit does work and the truth as paul says in timothy you know the word of god does pierce and it divides our hearts and it reveals to us our need of christ And so getting to serve here. Yeah, there's been plenty of ups and downs. You don't pastor in one area for 20 years without um, good and bad seasons. Uh, But God is faithful and he provides. And then you have these stories that you would never get to experience. Um, And so, yeah, we're in a wonderful season and just seeing God's faithfulness and raising our family here. Um, You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to serve anywhere else, honestly. Uh, so I'm grateful I get, I get to be here, and I've got so many great brothers and sisters, I, pastors. We're not in competition. We love each other, and um, that makes all the
2: difference in the world. And I guess to the greatest degree, it also presents the opportunity to sort of live out the fullness of the gospel. And by that, I mean, you know, sometimes we have the image of the old sawdust trail leading to the altar. You preach a message. Somebody responds. They come to Christ job done next here in the san francisco bay area we're dealing with differing cultures many for whom perhaps have never been exposed to the gospel of jesus christ in any form or fashion whatsoever and then add to that the notion of and i and i always i I, I love this imagery in scripture as we look at christ's earthly ministry every time he was about to minister to a crowd there was always emphasis on addressing real needs felt needs whether it was bringing sight to the blind, healing the lame, feeding the 5,000, there was always that sense of sensitivity to the immediate needs, certainly eternity first, foremost on the agenda. Of that, there's no doubt. But understanding, too, that demonstrating Christ's love goes to the heart of not only learning how to love one another— as a means of also demonstrating who we are, change lives, new creatures in Christ, but also that unique opportunity to allow God to love others through us. I think in many respects that helps to scream out the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we can quote chapter and verse, but it's one thing to preach the gospel. It's something I think entirely different to allow it to encompass the totality of your life so that we are in every respect living the gospel, which is, I believe, at the core of what real discipleship is all about. Yeah, I totally agree. Sometimes we forget
3: that Jesus only gave one command when he was on earth. You can study all the gospels and all the words, the red letters, and there's only one time that Jesus says, this is my commandment. My commandment is that you love one another. And it's easy to go, yeah, yeah, that love stuff. Let's get on to some real serious theology and we forget that um, spiritual growth, I think in Scripture, um, we, we forget that, one, the, the day of Pentecost, and uh, what we would think of as this um, you know, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is uh, really these uh, Jewish people that had been waiting for the Messiah. Peter gets up and he connects the dots. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified is the messiah and there is a, a a moment of recognition where they turn so um, when we deal with a culture like we have here uh in the bay area people coming from all different faith backgrounds we need to remember that the journey to salvation is going to be a process much like planting a seed the, the, the analogy that paul uses in corinthians of planting the seed and watering that takes time it doesn't happen in one sermon and so the relational component of uh, allowing—we uh, should be living out and reflecting the teachings of Jesus in our life, and then looking for not not being silent, looking for the opportunities to talk about it. But it's going to take time. There's a, a couple in our church um, been Hindu, I think, their whole life, and God began to work in their life through their children. And I think that's one of the things that we forget is sometimes the immigrant community we're going to probably reach them more through their children than we are going to them directly because they're not Christians, so they're not going to show up at our churches. Um, Christians show up at churches. And so this couple being open and it's been a a period of about six months of listening and hearing and talking and then finally i think i believe the teachings of jesus i i'm pretty sure that this is the direction i want to go with my life are you ready for baptism i'm not quite sure yet i'm there but it's this kind of dance and relationship and um so often we overestimate what we can accomplish in the short run and churches are notorious pastors are notorious for this how many people can we get in the building for this big event uh how fast can our church grow this year but we underestimate what we can do in the long run and more and more you know, when i was in church planting scene you know we would measure if a church made it you know their success after five years and now having pastored for 21 years i wonder if we should change that to 10 years I wonder if we should begin thinking in terms of life of seasons of life and thinking if I invest the next 10 or 15 years in this community, God, what could you do through me? Not what can I get done this week or this year even, but how can I make space, faithful service to see your spirit work through what we're doing here in our ministry? So I I completely agree. The opportunities are here. Yes, the challenges. But it's really an opportunity for us to live missionally and on purpose in this community.
2: And to your point, I think part of the complication related to being here in capitalistic society in the Western world where we measure success by how many widgets did we sell, how many square feet is the building, what were our sales like, how many attended Sunday school, et cetera, et cetera, failing to recognize that that the totality of the measurement of our success for the sake of the gospel is not strictly in numbers, though so often we tend to be very impressed by those numbers. I think the other thing, too, and this, I think, really goes to the heart of what you're sharing, Pastor, and that is the notion that we, we sometimes think that matters of, of of outreach to felt needs or social justice are, are somehow the touchy-feely end of things, and then there's theology, not recognizing that one is really intertwined with the other. For example, you mentioned about somebody coming from a Hindu background or even an individual coming from the Muslim faith, for whom the concept of a loving God is foreign to them. The notion is God is someone to be fearful of, someone to appease, someone who is ready to punish me at any move. When you begin to introduce concepts of a God who so passionately wants to walk in personal relationship with his creation that he sent his only son to die on a tree that we might, through that substitutionary work on the cross, be forgiven, reconciled, and then in relationship. Wow, that's that's when, as a kid, say, boom, that's a mind blow, right? And so to demonstrate that we love each other and love others in Christ's name, as representatives of Jesus here on earth, I think in many respects demonstrates true theology, true religion, as they say sometimes, that that it's not just the one or the other, but it really is a blend of the two. And oftentimes to reach individuals from these people groups, the ability to really demonstrate God's love is oftentimes the the foundation, if you will, of being able to ultimately lead them to the cross. Would you concur?
3: Oh, absolutely. Um, When we were uh, uh, serving with City Serves Compassion Network and— we the return of the Taliban in uh Afghanistan and so we had this kind of gr- group of um traumatized immigrants, refugees coming and um our city served churches partnered together to basically provide a, a shopping trip to Target and uh help with just some basic understandings of, you know, how how the public transportation system works and all these. And uh, I got to do a number of those um, handoffs to the volunteers from our churches here. And you would hear their stories, uh, which were traumatic. One family, uh, they still didn't know where one of their kids was. They got separated uh, coming over the wall and uh, they made it out and they don't know what happened. And you could see the pain, the hurt and the trauma. And then this new country and here is the first kind of group that is saying, we're going to make time. We're going to, you don't have transportation. We're going to take you to Target and got a little money for you to spend. And it was, it was not a huge investment, but here we are. Who's doing this? It's the Christians in the tri cities that believe that this is important. We're, we're glad you're here. Uh, we do love you. And here's why. Can we pray for you? Um, i think that kind of ministry in our context makes so much sense now if you're if you're simply trying to get your attendance up on sunday then it doesn't make sense because it's time intensive it costs money but if you're looking to plant seeds where where like you said craig this idea of a personal loving god who is so passionate for his creation to redeem them that he would send jesus I mean, even if the gospel wasn't true, which I totally believe it's true historically and theologically, but even if it wasn't, I'd still want to believe it's true because that's the kind of God that I would want to worship and love. And... Here we are, we have this opportunity to make a difference. And yes, it means we do diff- ministries sometimes differently, and we try to balance out the needs of the church. You know, as I dealt with church planners, it's like, hey, you got to pay the bills and you got to figure out what critical mass is in your context, all those other things. But at the end of the day, so much of what we do in church, I think it was Ed Stetzer who said, based on his studies, 91 to 97% of church growth in America is the transfer of Christians from one church to another. Now, that's not all bad. Let's be honest. God does use that. Sometimes we need a new place to worship or changes happen and so on. But we should not be celebrating the growth of our church in the sense that that equates to the kingdom growth. Instead, recognizing that kingdom growth occurs as... New sons and daughters are welcomed into the family of God, not just that they stopped going to so and so's church and starting
2: to come yeah. into mind. Shifting of the sheep, as they call it. And you know, yeah. I think to come back full circle to the notice that the the, the the notion that we are called to make disciples, not go steal somebody else's, but make disciples. And I and I think too, that missional approach to ministry. While certainly in a place like the San Francisco Bay Area, where we have a very transient population, we have a global population, you talk about an opportunity to reach every tribe, every tongue. Wow, this is it. You want to go know where the mission field is? Go open your front door. There it is. The opportunity, though, in, in that sense to live missionally, you know, I think sometimes we look at it certainly in the Bay Area as a necessity, but maybe it's broader speaking The mandate that everything that we do should be missional, whether it's the mission that's just Judea or the mission that's further out in Samaria or the uttermost parts of the earth. And maybe part of one of the challenges that the church in the West is missing is that we have kind of thought about missional living as something that happens in a foreign country that requires a passport to get there as opposed to literally in our own backyard.
3: Yes, I, I think that one of the things that excites me most in this season of ministry, coming out of COVID, and is is that there is a, a renewed desire for something substantive and real.
2: Take a moment for folks that are new to the Bay Area looking for a new church home, and tell us a bit about what God is doing there, and an extended invitation, if you would, please.
3: Sure. Well, we, um, we first recognize that what God is doing in the Bay Area, He is we are all the churches, I believe, are, are we play different roles on the same team. We aren't in competition. And there are so many good churches led by my friends in this community. And uh, I am blessed that I get to serve with them. At Grace Church, I would say um, we really are looking to be a place where people are known, where they know each other. A uh, little tagline you'll see on our website is following Jesus together. And they're not following me. Uh, we're following Jesus. But it is following. We are doing something. There's a participatory, a participatory element. And then we're going to do it together. I and mean, everything's so much more fun together. And so um, we really try to, one, teach the Word of God in very simple, clear un- – understanding is, uh, you know, really important – um, sometimes as Christians, we use a different language. And so we try to just be very aware of that. Um, I want people to walk out understanding what the scriptures have said and also what it is that it's asked of us. And then, um, I think as a church, we are in a season where we have been blessed, really abundantly blessed with, um, some wonderful people and, and, and leaders and resources. And we are focused on how do we best in this season be good stewards of all that God's given us. And so we're excited about what God is doing through some of our uh, missions work in Mexico and even locally in partnership with uh, Compassion Network. Um, And so I would just say, you know, if you don't have a church, you need one. Um, And if you haven't been to your church in a while, you should go back. Um, And if you want to make this holiday season meaningful. And I think everybody does. You are not going to have a meaningful holiday season. You're not going to have a meaningful life either. Unless Jesus is at the center of everything you're doing. And I do believe that God's plan for the world goes first and foremost through the local church. And so for those listeners, I would just say, you know, um, make space in your life to worship God with your brothers and sisters. Make space for spiritual conversations. And if Grace Church could be a place for you to check out, wonderful. We have two services, 9 and 1030. Um, at websites, gracechurchfremont.org. And uh, you'll get a warm welcome. And uh, But if you haven't been to your church, go to your church. I think that's important to say.
2: And if you're new and you're looking for a church home, as you've heard the extended invitation from Pastor Wharton, we invite you to check out Grace Church Fremont, 36060 Fremont Boulevard. That's 36060 Fremont Boulevard. And the service times again are Sunday mornings at 9 and again at 10.30 a.m. Complete details available on the web at gracechurchfremont.org. That's Grace church, Fremont. Dot o-r-g. Pastor Josh Wharton, we appreciate so much you carving out some time for us today. Been a delight to have you share from your heart, and uh, we look forward to the opportunity to do it again sometime.
3: Well, thank you so much, Craig. It's great talking with you. Good morning. Glad that you're here. And for those of you that are joining us online, thanks for watching and listening. We're in our series on busyness and I think the American culture prides itself on busyness, probably more than most. And maybe here in the Bay Area, we're the worst of the worst. Business is now a, a new badge of honor, it's part of your value. If you're busy, that means you're important. And what happens when we're busy, what happens when we go through seasons where we feel like there's just no stop, right? That you get up on Monday morning and it's not you're excited about the week, it's the list. It's like, man, what do we got to get done this week? And how do you got to figure this out? How are we going to work all these things in? When when we live that way, whether consciously or unconsciously, things that are important but not urgent get pushed to the back burner. You get moved aside. And this series is about saying, hey, whether you're busy or you just think you're busy, it doesn't really matter. You're probably living the same way, that sense of busyness, hecticness that intrudes. There are certain things that we have to make time for. There are certain things that are so important that if we don't make time for them, we're actually hurting ourselves. We're, we're actually harming ourselves. In the first week, we talked about our relationship and connection with God. You know, when we're busy, that's one of the first things that goes. Last week, we, we built on that and we talked about how, how when we are busy, we stop having meaningful conversations, meaningful spiritual conversations. And, and busyness, of course, is typically about gaining some sense of value or meaning to our life. The, the reason we're so busy is because we're attempting to get that feeling of like, ah, I accomplished something, look at what I've done, I, this, my life matters. And so when we get busy, the first thing that can go to the side is meaningful conversations with those around us. The very thing that would give you the the peace that would allow you to slow down is the very first thing that so often we let go of. Because what makes life meaningful? It's the relational connection with God and it's the connection with each other. The people that God's put in our lives. And so we've got to make time to have meaningful spiritual conversations with those around us because if we don't, then we get to the end of our week and what do we have to show for it? Just some busyness. Well, today, uh, as I was uh, talking, you know, studying through this subject of kind of busyness and hecticness, I came across this uh, Pew Research survey between 2018 and 2023. And in 2018, six in 10 adults said they feel too busy to enjoy life. Isn't that sad? Six out of 10 of us can't enjoy life. The numbers held the same in 2023. It means that more than half of Americans feel like they never have enough time to do what they need to do. Well, today I want us to look at this story of Jesus. And I, and I think um, both the, the, this one particular story tells us a lot about what matters in life. It talks, it talks just about why we are here, what we're called to do. But it also kind of pushes back on the busyness of our culture. If there was anyone who was always breaking the rules and never seemed in a hurry and always getting sidetracked, it was Jesus. And it frustrated those around him many times. And so, um, looking here at John chapter 4, uh, verse 3, it says that Jesus left Judea and he went north. He returned to Galilee and he had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, I want to talk about Samaria a little bit because this really plays a, uh, a key purpose. It's hard to understand this story. I think the real meaning of it and value of it. Back, uh, back let's say, I think it was around uh, 800 AD, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel... The kingdom had split, and there was a northern and southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire, they had an uh, empire-building technique. Uh, what they would do is they would take half of the population, and they would ship them off all over the world to other parts of their empire, and they would bring in people from all over the world to this new place. And it was, it was done in that way, to help eliminate the nationalistic fervor of defending your country. Because why would you go fight the empire when you don't even live in your homeland anymore? So over time, uh, by the time Jesus' day had arrived here, the people in Samaria, the northern areas, had intermarried with people from all over the world. And you can go back through a lot of Jewish literature at this point in time, And there is, for lack of of a better term, there's there's racism and bigotry between the southern Jews, the real Jews, and what they called half-breeds, the half-breeds in Samaria. It was so bad that a good Jewish person, if they had to travel north, would add sometimes a whole day to their journey just to go around Samaria. That's how bad the bigotry was. And so it's in this setting that Jesus decides that he has to go through Samaria. And eventually he says he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now you and I, we have no idea where this field is. But if you were Jewish and you were from the area, that's a real place. And they'd be like, oh, I know. I have a mental picture of where this well is. And oh, I get it. I'm picturing the story. Jacob's well was at this spot. And of course, when you travel, wells are good to kind of, you know, it's like the pit stop on the road. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. As long as we think of Jesus as the Superman, right? But so Jesus has been walking all day. He's exhausted. He stops at the well. Uh, We'll find out later in the story that the disciples go into the village to buy food, but he waits. He's at the well. And a Samaritan woman came to draw water And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Now, you and I might think, well, hey, um, that makes sense, right? You're tired after a long walk. But what Jesus does here is he intentionally crosses a, a huge cultural boundary. The first boundary he crosses, he's a man and she's a woman. And even today in many parts of the world, but especially in the Middle East, Um, men do not conversate with women. And women, if they do conversate with men, um, you never look them in the eyes. It's kind of considered inappropriate. So culturally, he is uh, saying, hey, uh, give me a drink. But more than that, for a Jewish man to ask for a favor from a Samaritan woman... was ridiculous this was so out of the ordinary and we see this because in the next verse you know it says he was alone at that time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food and the woman was shocked she was surprised why for jews refused to have anything to do with samaritans a a good jew would gladly go without water rather than to have to ask a half-breed Samaritan woman for help. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. What's this game you're playing? Why are you asking me for a drink? We are going to see in this story a very strong, outspoken, very direct woman. She immediately wants to get to the heart of the issue this isn't right. You, this is not how it works. I'm not going to play your game and give you some water and act like nothing weird's going on here. This is, this is what's up? What's going on here? And so Jesus replies, well, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now, if you want to see this, this woman's like, personality next verse you don't even have a rope or a bucket and the well is deep dude where are you going to get this water from you need me if you want water and you're talking about living water how are you going to give me living water you didn't even bring your bucket you don't have a rope you can't go in there and get it what's up what what what's going on here and jesus replies anyone who drinks this water he points at the well well, you're going to be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Suddenly, the conversation has shifted. We were talking about pulling water out of a well, and now you're talking about eternal life? And this woman is smart. She goes, okay then, please, give me this water. I I don't ever want to be thirsty again, and I don't have to come out here to to get water. Go and tell your husband, Jesus told her. Well, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. See, culturally, that would be the appropriate thing to do. Pull the husband into the conversation, talk to them together. She says, well, you know, I don't have a husband. Jesus replies, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And you aren't even married to the one you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, I want to pause right there because this is actually a perfect passage to illustrate how translations of the Bible affect how you read stories. So this is in English. It's translated out of Greek. It's an accurate translation. But I want you to think about this. He, Jesus asks her, um, you know, hey, go get your husband. That's the appropriate thing to do. Her reply is, I have no husband, literally. And Jesus says to her, you're right. Now, I want you to notice the exclamation point. You're right, exclamation at the bottom. You certainly spoke the truth, exclamation. And, and if you're not careful, it, it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five of them. And the guy you're living with right now, you're not even married to. You did speak the truth. But you know, we, we don't know a whole bunch about Samaritan culture because Samaritan culture was an intermingled culture. And it continued, the culture continued to evolve in Samaria but as best we understand it, um, the Samaritan culture did in many ways try to mimic the Jewish culture. That was part of the tension, right? The Jews, they worshiped the right way. They were pure-blooded. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They worshiped in their mountain. They didn't get it right, but they still claimed to be Jewish. See, that's what bugged the Jewish people so much is that the Samaritans still claimed to be Jewish. And the Jewish people were like, well, if you just give up calling yourself Jewish, then we'd be okay. We, you'd be one of the heathen. Well, here's what we know. Women had no right of divorce in this culture. What happened? We know that as we are going to see in Advent season, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Culturally, Mary's probably somewhere between 16 and 12. Probably our best guess is she's 14. It's an arranged marriage with Joseph. So this woman being raised, her first marriage, maybe she was 14. Maybe she got engaged to a, an older guy, right? Because typically if you're trying to continue the family name and you want stability for your daughter, you try to arrange a marriage with a man who is stable and has wealth and can take care of this, your daughter and your future grandchildren. What if her first husband died? She, she can't divorce him. That's not her choice, culturally. What if she was such a wonderful woman that there were a bunch of guys lined up? They kept dying. It doesn't say she was divorced five times. It says she'd had five husbands. Or what if, as a young teenager, she had married a guy who didn't love her? and divorced her when it wasn't convenient for him anymore so she had gone through the trauma of death or divorce not once not twice not 3 times not 4 times 5 times and Jesus meets this woman at the well. What if the conversation was more like this? Go and get your husband. (sighs) I don't have a husband. You're right. You don't. You've had five husbands. And the man you're with now, you're not married to. Thank you for being honest with me. Do you see how that changes the story? So often we bring our biases culturally to the text. If I run into somebody who's been divorced five times, you know, I don't say it out loud. (laughs) But I'm thinking it. Just like you. Oh, wow, you're a wild one. Okay. I bet there's some good stories back there. (laughs) And so often, our preconceptions of people, our prejudgments of them, shape how we respond to them. But not Jesus. He's focused, He's honed in, He loves this woman. So in response to this revelation that Jesus knows her, having never met her, what does she say? Next verse, sir, you must be a prophet. So one of the marks of a prophet in the Jewish culture was the ability to know things that they shouldn't know. That was proof that they were connected with God. Okay, because if you know something you shouldn't know, somebody told you, that means God told you, which means you, God is speaking through you, and that's the definition of a prophet, someone that God speaks through. So she goes, okay, I'm dealing with a prophet. So she says, well, fine, if you've got a connection with God, I've got a question for you. Tell me, why is it that the Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship? Well, we Samaritans, we claim that here at Mount Gerizim, that's where our ancestors worshiped. So see, what had happened when the tribes had broken apart and the kingdoms had separated, the king of the northern kingdom, in his insecurity, did not want the people of Israel to go worship at Jerusalem. He was afraid that, that they would be disloyal to him, so he, he abolished that part of their practice of religion and he had created a new holy place and over time this has evolved into this mountain of garrison so they would all go to worship at the mountain instead of worshiping in jerusalem but jesus he doesn't take the bait he doesn't get into the religious argument you know so often we want to convince people of all the areas of their theology that are wrong before we ever tell them about what is true or what right. But Jesus doesn't play that game. He's not interested in getting her to worship in Jerusalem because the reality is, is that the time for worship in Jerusalem is ending. God is doing a new thing. Jesus is the proof of the new thing that God is doing in the world. So what does Jesus say? Believe me, dear woman. I love that. Dear woman, there is concern and care he is not interested in winning an argument he is not interested in proving her wrong or showing her how her religion and practice of her faith was in disagreement with the right way the jewish way dear woman the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the father on this mountain or in jerusalem You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. He acknowledges that they have been worshiping God. They've been doing it the wrong way, but they're worshiping God. And he says, you don't understand. While we Jews, we we do know the right way to worship. God gave us instructions. We're following it. For salvation comes through the Jews. You see, both uh, the Jewish people were waiting for the promise of the Messiah. And in this case, this woman confirms that she is too. Notice the next verse. It says, the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You need both. You need truth, but you also need heart. This is not about rituals that you perform. We don't go to church to earn brownie points with God or to somehow claim a title. I like to jokingly say that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. For God is a spirit, so those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. I'm waiting for it too. The one who is called the Christ, when He comes, He will explain everything to us. So this woman has been living in faith. She is living in faith that the Messiah is coming. She has her instructions about how to do it completely messed up. And she's doing it the wrong way. And Jesus acknowledges that. Hey, the the truth has been delivered to the Jews. The hope of the world is going to come through the Jewish people. Salvation is coming. And she says, yeah, I'm waiting for it too. And then he says, maybe the best word she's ever heard. Then Jesus said to her, I am. I am the Messiah. Can you imagine out at a well in the middle of a dusty desert? The woman who has gone through more trauma and heartbreak and sorrow experiences the most incredible moment of her life. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, has met her at the well. Just then, His disciples come back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but as opposed to the men, she actually had the nerve to speak the truth to Jesus, to tell him what she was thinking, to tell him what she was struggling with. These disciples, they don't have the nerve to ask him, what do you want? What are you doing with this woman? Why are you talking to her? So they just keep it quiet when the story ends, verse 30, the woman leaves her water jar beside the well. She runs back to the village. She tells everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the promised one, the Messiah? Come and check it out for yourself. And it says, The people came streaming from the village to see him. I would suggest that this woman is well enough known and enough respected and trusted that her testimony about Jesus becomes the basis for people to get, well, hey, we got to go find out about this. She's talking about him. And we know her. So whatever was about her, it lent credibility to Jesus and the people came streaming out. Now, as you can imagine, we could go a lot of different directions with this story. It is a good one. And it's incredibly human. I mean, to see Jesus thirsty, Breaking all the rules culturally, you gotta love that about Jesus. He's concerned with this woman. He uh, he he appreciates her honesty, her directness. He responds with compassion and honesty, and tells her the truth of how her life can be changed and how she can experience eternal life—the water of life that never ends. Now, this is not the, the focus of this message, but I was having a conversation after the service with someone, and they, they just said, you know, Pastor, it, a lot of times people come to church, and they don't even know what the gospel is. Like, yeah, That's so true. And if you're here, and you don't know what the gospel is, I, 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 I didn't think to do this in the early service, but I want you to know, here's what the gospel is. The good news is that Jesus Christ... Died for your sins because you are separated from God by what you've done. You're a sinner. But God, as our Creator, loves us and He has sent Jesus into the world. He lived a perfect life. He showed us how to live. And then He willingly, no one made Him. The crucifixion was not a tragic accident. It was the plan of God to offer Jesus. Jesus was not a victim. Jesus is a part of the Godhead. And he said, I am going to lay down my life. No one takes it from me. And he died on the cross to forgive the sins of the entire world. But the forgiveness of your sins is not appropriated or credited to your balance until you, in faith and trust... Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you accept his forgiveness of sin and you make him the leader of your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then his resurrection on Easter was proof that the sacrifice he made for our sins on the cross was sufficient. And we live in the hope, just as this woman did, just as everyone who's ever trusted in Christ does, we live in the hope that when we die we will also be raised, and at some point in the future, God is coming back to restore the world, to make it the way it's supposed to be. That's the gospel. And Christians are people who have placed their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done. And so when we think about this idea, this story, there's so much here, but I want to focus in on what does it require of us to share the good news you know, when we're busy and hectic and we're we're, we're running around, maybe you're like me. When I go to Costco, I am not going to Costco to have a conversation. I am not going to meet friends. I am not going to connect with my community. I am going to buy things. I have already mapped out in my mind the fastest course And you people who leave your cart in the middle of the aisle, while you walk all the way down there to check out the towels, you are causing a traffic jam. And they need cops in Costco to issue you a ticket for blocking the aisles. And you go in this way, and you go around the U. You don't go that way. It's like driving the wrong way on the freeway, folks. Come on. So I go to Costco. I am focused. I have my to-do list. Um, my son and I, when we go shopping, right? We have already mapped out what store we need to visit, what is an appropriate price to pay for the clothing item we need. We are not there to look. We are there to buy, and we do not leave items with the cashier telling them that we. Could you hold this for me? Just in case when I'm done looking at every store in the mall, I decide I want this item, I'm going to come back and get it. No, we are in and out. This is focus, folks. I I love what Dave Ramsey says. You know, when when my wife says go buy something, I'm like a hunter. I have found the prey. I'm going to go kill it. I'm going to drag it back to the cave. We are not here to socialize. We are not here to meet new friends at Safeway. I'm getting my stuff and I'm going home, right? Well, the problem is this. I wonder if I was the one at the well. I wonder if the woman, I wonder if the woman would know that Jesus loves her. Or would I just got my cup of water and kept my mouth shut? You know, so often I, I'm busy doing stuff. And we forget that the, the guy we follow, Jesus, he, he was never too busy to be distracted by people. In fact, he frustrated people all the time. He's always slowing down to talk to somebody. In fact, somebody died before he could get there. And they're kind of mad at him. Uh, Jesus, why did you stop and talk to that woman and deal with that issue? You know, if you'd have gotten here earlier, um, they'd still be alive. And so often I wonder if, if my sense of busyness or hecticness, if I'd have gone to the well, would that woman still be headed to hell? So I just want to talk about really the importance of sharing the good news even though we're busy what's required of us if we're going to share the good news well I would say in this story we can see that it requires conversation and relationship Um, Jesus does not hand the woman a track I'm not saying tracks aren't bad they can be good but he doesn't hand her a track and say good luck he doesn't post a message on Facebook hey When you get a chance, go on my Instagram. I got some good stuff on there for you, but I got to head out. You know, it's a lot easier to post Jesus loves you on Facebook than it is to have a conversation with someone and show them that Jesus loves them. Conversation and relationship are really at the core of sharing the good news. It took time. Something we all don't have enough of. Something we're all busy with. Real conversation, real relationships always take time, and Jesus was willing to take the time. Secondly, sharing the good news requires focusing on the spiritual. You now, just this uh, last week, we've been doing these gather together dinners, which, which really have been so fun, and I, I hope many of you would please sign up. We, we, my wife and I, have had such a good time doing that, uh, and and and. One of the themes, one of the things we see that God is wanting to do at Grace Church is, is, is to raise our awareness of the, this world that we live in that needs Jesus. And I've been thinking and praying about just, you know, the fact that, hey, God, would you bring people in my path that need you? And I found that when I pray like that, God brings people. And so it dawned on me this week, you know, I'm, I'm going through, the, we put together this really nice handout about the vision. We're doing all these dinner gatherings and, and it dawned on me there's, I can talk to so many people about everything. I mean, the weather and politics and sports. I can, I can have a conversation with you about your kids and, and what's going on in your career and yet somehow miss, skip over spiritual things. The, the thing that, that I would say is the thing that really matters the most but Jesus, he doesn't do that. He's very aware. He's very intentional, right? It starts with a cup of water, and she says, Well, hey, you know what? You, uh, uh, you don't have a bucket. You, you're going to give me water. And he goes, Oh, yeah, I want to give you water that has eternal life. Talk about a switch. I mean, like he's he's on it. And he's looking for a chance to talk about spiritual things with this woman because he understands that that's what matters and lastly sharing the good news requires understanding the gospel and the ability to talk about it that takes practice you know, if some of you, if, if I was to ask you, uh, you know, um, hey, tell me about your job, what you do, or your hobby, or you can, you can give me all the great instructions on how to grill a tri-tip. You could explain to me how to perfectly make those chocolate chip cookies. You could, you could tell me how to write code. I wouldn't know what you're talking about, but you could tell me all you want about. You could talk to me far longer about those things than I could ever want to listen But sometimes, as Christians, when it comes to Jesus, somebody was to come and say, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian, and how do I become one? Well, come to church on Sunday, and my pastor will explain it to you. And this is not, please don't take this as criticism. It's more a gauge of awareness. If this is the guy that we follow, right? Jesus, we believe he's God come in the flesh, that his death on the cross paid for our sin, his resurrection uh, proved that he had power over life and death, and that through trust and faith in him, um, we can experience his loving leadership in our life, and our lives can be changed forever. If that's the guy we follow maybe we should be able to talk about him a little bit more. What he believed, how he lived, what he taught. And we've got to understand the gospel and we've got to be able to, to share it. And that's one of the things I look forward to in the new year. Some opportunities to help equip you, equip me to talk about our faith in this culture, I think is important. I want to end with this verse, 1 Peter 1 Peter 3.15 the apostle says that if anyone asks about your Christian hope, you, you say you believe in Jesus, you you'd say like you're, you're really excited about this, you say that really matters, your hope is in Christ. What does that mean? He says, hey, you need to be ready to talk about it. You need to be able to explain it. Interesting study from LifeWay Research. He said half of Americans say they're curious as to why some people are devoted to their faith. 51% of people. The survey of over 2,000 people. Including 60% of religiously unaffiliated people. They said, I'm not religious at all, but I'm curious to learn about why you think your religion is so important. Two-thirds of Americans say that they are open to spiritual conversations with a friend. That's probably where we make the mistake sometimes in Christianity. We don't have too many friends. 66% say they're at least open to having a conversation about faith with a friend. And 41% say they are very open. Scott McConnell, who did the Survey the research for Lifeway. Here's what's his takeaway. This study reveals that most Americans are open to talking about faith. It really isn't about religious liberty, people not wanting to hear, or religion being off limits. The reason conversations are not happening about the Christian faith is that Christians are not bringing it up. Ouch. I want to end with this thought. People who are open to the gospel could cross your path at any time. Are you ready? Are you ready? We're all busy. We have too much to do. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to make space to share the gospel.
2: Lead Pastor Josh Roten from Grace Church of Fremont.
1: This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to your church's website to Week at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor in church along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week.